Our sermon passage this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew. It's passages from the end of chapter 27 into chapter 28. And this is after Jesus has died on the cross, immediate aftermath of that. So I have it printed for us in the bulletin, Matthew 27, 57 through 2810, if you have your Bibles or flip there in your phones. This is God's Word, good, beautiful, and true. As evening approached, there was a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. So Joseph took the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and he placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in the front of the entrance of the tomb, and he went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priest and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, the deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and they made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting a guard. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, he rolled back the stone and he sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow, and the guards were so afraid of him that they shook, and they became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He is risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy. And they ran to tell the disciples, suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, and they clasped his feet and worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that in it we get a glimpse of who you are and what you're about and what you're up to. And so we get a picture of who we are in you. So this morning, as we reflect on this incredible report of your victory, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, I pray that you would move by your spirit and impress it upon our hearts that it might not just be a historical fact that we look to, that it might not just be another good reason for a holiday, but Lord, that we might see this as what it is, the most important moment in human history that changes everything. Pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Our passage this morning begins in a place of despair. And I'm going to break our, our passage up into a couple of different sections like I normally do. And the first one's the tomb. And that's where the passage begins. It begins, in essence, in a graveyard. And what we see is that Jesus has been stripped of every piece of worldly dignity. If you read through the Gospel of Matthew, particularly this last week of Jesus' life, it is this progressive, for lack of a better term, undressing of Jesus. He's literally stripped of his clothes. He's stripped of his flesh. He's mocked. 
He's abandoned by friends. He's betrayed. He's arrested and he's brought into the sh a sham of a trial. We see him not just rejected by the very important people in society. He's rejected by the crowd. He's beaten by soldiers who take his clothes. He's mocked by religious leaders, by passersby. He's even mocked, if you notice, by the men who are being crucified beside him. The political rebels that had that same uh, sentence executed on them. He's even mocked by them. As I said, if you read through that last week of Jesus' life, is this progressive and amplifying stripping away of every piece of dignity. And it's breathtaking in its scope and its heart. And I think it's recorded for us in this way, in the Gospel of Matthew, so that we know what everyone surrounding Jesus would have claimed to know in this last week, that this is the end. This is the end. Whatever Jesus is supposed to be about, this is the end. Whatever he's up to, it's over. In fact, Jesus kind of says that. Well, one of the last things he says is, it is finished, right? From a certain perspective, that can feel like it's done. I don't, I don't have anything left. It's finished. And so what they do is they take the lifeless body of Christ and they put it in a tomb. And it describes the tomb. It says it's, it's a tomb uh, that's carved out of stone. Verse 60 tells us a new, it's a new tomb. It's never been used before. This is, a, this is new construction. No cracks, no flaws. And then we're told that a stone is rolled in front of the tomb to keep anyone out. Nobody can get in. And then Pilate, the local governor, it says he has the stone sealed, right? But they go to him and say, Dude, there's something fishy going on here. His, his followers might try to steal the body. Can we seal the tomb? And so Pilate does that. And it's not just that he like puts another stone in front of it. What it they would have put like this uh, clay-like glue substance to seal all the cracks, and after they finished, they would have pressed the, the signia of Caesar into the stone to let anybody know, if you mess with this, if you mess with this stone, you are going to incur the wrath of the state on you. If you mess with this stone, you have Caesar and all Rome against you. And then Pilate not only does that, what he dispatches a guard of multiple soldiers to, to watch the tomb. In fact, he says it there in a, I don't know if you noticed it, in a, chapter 27, verse 65. Pilate says, make this tomb as secure as you know how. This is all the best minds, all the best materials and resources they have put to work to seal up. Whatever Jesus is, seal it up. Close it up in this box and shut it away. We don't have to worry about it anymore. Make sure it's shut away. This is the end. And that's the tomb. Next session, the, the confusion. So Jesus is dead, and the hopes of his disciples are dead in the tomb alongside him. And notice, nobody knows what to do. His disciples, the, the male disciples at least, they're in hiding. They fled. They're gone. Joseph of Arimathea, this guy who, this very wealthy man who had become a disciple, he takes Jesus' body and prepares it for burial. He puts it in his own tomb. He doesn't know what to do. <laughs> He's making himself busy at this. And look at verse, uh, uh, chapter 21, verse 1. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. This is, it's not funny, but they don't know what to do either. They go and look at the tomb. They don't know what else to do. 
just going to go look at the tomb. Maybe you've been here in your life in this overwhelming confusion of grief, which is what this is. This profound, overwhelming confusion. You have no idea what to do. So maybe you have been like the disciples and in the face of grief you run. Or maybe you've been like Joseph here in the face of grief you get busy. <laughs> you find things to do. Or maybe like the two Marys, you just sit and stare at your grief. You don't know what else to do. Now, if you're a student of history, you would think that this confusion, this is the natural aftermath of the end of a story. Because at least in the religious leader's mind, there had been men like Jesus before who had gathered, you know, rose up and started teaching and gathered a following, and they had been crushed before. And so it was okay, now the disciples scatter, and that's what happens. The followers are in grief, and they just go off. But Jesus is a lot more than just a failed leader. He wasn't trying to build an army to rush in and he got his hopes squashed here. Because Jesus didn't come just to inspire us to be a better version of ourselves or anything like that. He didn't come to give good advice as I often say. He came to give good news of a victory accomplished. Not good advice about how to live more fulfilling and more successful lives. He came to break the, bound, the, the bonds that hold us. So his death and him entering that tomb, it was not a mistake. It was him facing what faces us. It was him walking into the very midst of the thing that overcomes every human being. Jesus faced the powers of sin and death to free us. And so he came not with just good advice. He comes with good news that he is God, that he can forgive sins. That he is God and he has overcome death by taking it on his shoulders. And in his death, death itself is swallowed up. He came to drink the dregs of the bitter cup of sin to the very bottom so that we don't have to. And so that's why the story doesn't end here at the tomb and in the confusion. That's why it's not the end. And that leads me to my next section, the dawn. I love that it points out in, in verse 1 of chapter 28 that all this takes place at dawn of the first day of the week. It wasn't Tuesday. <laughs> it was in the middle of the week. The point was this. It, almost like Jesus had summed up all the time in himself. You know, the entire Old Testament religion, it was built on a calendar that looked forward to the end. Sabbath was the last day of the week. So they would work all week. Work hard, work hard, work hard, rest. Work, 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 rest. That was like the mindset. That was the rhythm built into their life. But the resurrection of Jesus, and this is the whole reason the early Christians started worshiping on Sunday right away. Because they recognized that what Jesus did, I'm getting ahead of myself, in the resurrection was literally changed time itself. Literally changed our relationship to time. In this sense, that we don't live lives of work, 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 rest. That we live out of the worthiness that is earned for us by Jesus. We, he has entered into a rest of new creation. And now we start from that place. It's not work, 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 and then you get to rest. It's Jesus has won this thing for you. He has bought this victory for you. And that's where you start out from, the first day of it. And it informs everything after. I didn't even have that written down. That's just an aside. That's the first day of the week. That's why the early Christians made, a, made such a big deal out of it. 
They treated every Sunday in a sense like Easter. Because every Sunday when we get together, this is the day that Jesus, the Lord, rose from the dead. And so here at dawn on the first day, the two Marys are there, like I said, to grieve their loss of their teacher, their friend, their Lord. They're there to stare at the tomb because they don't know what else to do. They're there mourning the loss of maybe the only man who ever looked them in the eye and took them seriously as human beings. And these women, they are to stare at their grief and become the eyewitnesses of a new creation dawning. And what we see here in the passage that all the best planning by all the best minds in the world, all the best make this tomb as secure as you know how, is undone in a moment. The tomb, no matter how secure and guarded it can be, cannot hold the glory of the work that God is doing. So verse 2, look at it. The angel descends to roll the stone away. And he can't be stopped by those guards. And Pilate would have put the most impressive guards he possibly could guarding that tomb. He can't be start, stopped by those guards. They respond in fear. They're frozen in their fright. And the seal there with, with Caesar's insignia meant to scare everybody off. It doesn't stop this. He doesn't even stop at all. He breaks the seal. He rolls the stone away and then he sits on it. The stone intended to seal up Jesus and everything he is into a small tomb. That stone becomes a chair. And so the two women, what do they do? They've just seen this awesome display of power. If a guard of Roman soldiers and a sealed stone cannot hold this angel back, what are two grieving women, women going to do in the face of this power? So the angel turns to them in verse 5 and he tells them this, Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Why? Verse 6. He's not here. He has risen just as he said. The point is that Jesus has risen not so he can use his power against them, but he's risen from the, de from the dead for them. That in fact this very rising from the dead is Jesus using his power to defeat the enemies that stood against the women. They're looking for Jesus in this tomb that is now open to the world and he cannot be found there. And so they're commanded to go and tell the scattered disciples. And it says in verse 8, and I love this too, they leave afraid but filled with joy. Afraid but filled with joy. And along the way they're greeted by the risen Jesus himself. Now, our translation here, it says that Jesus says greetings, which I think is just such a soft translation. <laughs> you raise from the dead and you're going to be like, hi. That's, it, it, <laughs> our translation doesn't get at the power of this. So the word there, greetings, is rooted in the same Greek word as grace. What Jesus is saying to them, in case they don't know, is that the word that is going to define the new creation, the word that defines his resurrection for them is grace. It's not just him saying hi. They get their first glimpse of the risen Jesus. And he says grace. Grace. The defining word of the new creation for you is grace. It's not him just saying hi. And they understood that. That's why they clasped his feet and worshipped him. And I think that's a natural reaction. If I saw Jesus in front of me, I don't know what I would do, but I think I would grab a hold <laughs> and not let go. They just realized the greatest truth of their lives, that the one they had followed and trusted in has risen from the dead, victorious over the powers that hold them bound, and so they grab a hold of him. Maybe they think if they don't grab him now, he'll disappear. Maybe it's too good to be true, but at the dawn of the new creation, their despair at the loss of the only thing they ever believed in is turned into joy. 
And their fear is turned into joy mixed with fear, but joy nonetheless. And the good news of Jesus' gracious hello is uttered to them. That brings me to my last section, the transformation. Nothing remains unchanged after the resurrection of Jesus. Nothing. Jesus is alive and it changes everything. The stone, as I mentioned already, the stone becomes a chair for the angel. The tomb that was supposed to seal away and be the end of everything that Jesus was, the tomb becomes the womb of a new creation born. The for forgotten women that were such not a threat that the guards didn't mind them staring at the tomb, the women that were supposedly not a threat that came to observe their grief, they become the heralds. They become the first announcers of the resurrection. They become the first people tasked with announcing that Jesus is alive and that changes everything. And his resurrection for them can mean that they can have the courage to speak in a world who told them that their voices didn't count. Because at the time, at the time, women were not even allowed to be witnesses in court. Women were considered less than men by literally, legally. The words couldn't be trusted. The first announcers that Jesus is alive and that changes everything were these women who found in his new life courage. Courage. And the disciples who had fled to save their own hides, men like Peter, they become witnesses to the ends of the earth. We know about this because the disciples wrote it down. And think, I've made this point before, but think about this. If you read through the New Testament, read through the writings of the people who wrote the New Testament, you see that they don't paint themselves in the best light. We read the New Testament, we discover Peter, who was kind of the main disciple, kind of the, the, like, the, the administrative <laughs> guy in charge of that first group of twelve. We find that Peter, decades after the resurrection of Jesus, is still having his prejudice, prejudice dragged into the light. He keeps sticking his foot in his mouth. He keeps making mistakes left and right. But Peter didn't go on some uh, campaign to have all that covered up so people wouldn't know about his weaknesses, about his mistakes. And I think Peter felt the freedom to walk in weakness and to own the reality of his mistakes because Jesus was alive. And because of what uh, Paul wrote in Romans 4 that we read, that Jesus was raised to life for our justification. So Peter could rest his head, even with all his weaknesses and mistakes, and say, my vindication is not me. My vindication isn't that I get it all right. My vindication isn't that I can do it all. My vindication is Jesus. He rose from the dead, and that was for me. And he's changing me, and I'm not perfect, and I'm not there yet, but my vindication is Jesus. And so that's part of the transformation. The disciples who fled in absolute fear become the men who write Scripture, who plant churches, who take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And pour their lives out for the sake of God's people. And this is just the beginning. I can keep going. I won't. I'm sorry. Or thank you. You're welcome. Um, I won't keep going and just keep listing. But it, it just keeps going. If you flat, I'll even fast forward to the end. Revelation 21, last chapter of the Bible. What does Jesus say? This, this, this incredible vision that John has. He sees Jesus on the throne and Jesus says, I'm making everything new. It starts right here in this tomb. It starts right here in this garden. It starts with these women. God is making all things new. This is the beginning here in Matthew 28, but it is not the end. 
Nothing remains unchanged. And as I close, I want to remind you that that nothing that remains unchanged includes you and me. What we're celebrating today, the resurrection of Jesus from dead, is the defining moment in human history. No matter who you are, where you're from, or what you've believed before, you have to account for it. You can't be heard and shrugged at. Oh, Jesus rose from the dead. No, it changes everything. Whether you believed in a thousand gods or no gods or one god, the resurrection disrupts everything. Disrupts everything. And we can know that this transformation that comes from the new creation that dawned here, that this transformation is ours. And we begin to feel it now. The very fact that we can hear the gospel and not tremble. The very fact that we can hear it announced to us and we can place our faith in Christ and we can find comfort there. Those are the sparks. Those are the beginning embers burning in our hearts. That God will continue to grow and grow and grow. Those are the down payments. Those are the promises to us, the guarantees to us. That what awaits us at the end of our lives isn't just death. It's not just a tomb. What awaits us is a vindication of Jesus' had. Jesus rising from the dead is the guarantee that we will as well. Jesus rising from the dead in victory is the guarantee that death is not the end for us either. It's the guarantee that death will not be the final word, that sin will not be the final word, but that the final word over us will be the first word that Jesus spoke to these women, grace, grace, forever grace, unending and immeasurable grace. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning thankful for the good news of your resurrection, that as you rose, Lord Christ, you rose for us, and there in that tomb, the only thing that remained is, this, is our sins that you dragged down into death. The only thing that remains in the tomb is our sin. That can, our sin that can never rise to condemn us again. May we rejoice in that. And may we hear the echoing word of grace, that greetings in our ears and our hearts. May it carry us along, Lord. As we watch you and experience you transform us. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.